Hi, this is David Wall, and you're listening to Talking Blues. So, I'm curious, um, I know you're a wonderful singer, and you also play the keyboards. Oh, thank how, you. Thank how did music come into your life? Um, well, I have a very musical family. Um, my father's mother, uh, who passed away at the age of 103, wow. woman, um, she was the kind of, she could play by, piano by the ear to the point where she sounded like Liberace. And you could make up, you could hum something, hey, grandma, play this, no, 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 just make up something, and she would turn it into Rachmaninoff. I wow. mean, she really was a genius. And she, the, the amazing story is that she made a living briefly in her 20s improvising in silent movie theaters in Montreal. So she'd see, you know, she would never have seen the film before and she would just play these kind of pretty much hackneyed cliches of, you know, the villain or the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, and, and, you know, she was that good that, you know, she, she could improvise a score in 19-whatever-it-was. Uh, anyway, so that, and then my father inherited this incredible musical ear, and he he taught himself, it's amazing, he taught himself to play concert-level piano. Like, I didn't appreciate it when I was a kid, but he was playing Brahms, Liszt, totally self-taught. And he was also, he played clarinet in the Harvard Orchestra when he was there. So really quite a musical guy, and I just absorbed that. There was always music around. And then my mom's family was also very musical. Her mother was a uh, concert-level pianist and, and piano teacher. You know, she was unlucky enough to be in a generation where she wasn't encouraged to apply herself to any kind of uh, concert career, but just a brilliant musician. Um, and just there was just music around always when I was a kid of multiple genres, and did you have um, a, did you know, I mean, did, did music um, appeal to you or was it just around you? Like, when did you find your love of music? Well, there's, there's a different, so I always loved listening to music. I always loved when my mom would sing me lullabies and I would put on, you know, I put on records and listen to them when I was very young. But then I, I remember there was a moment, I think I was seven years old living in the beaches. And there was a moment when I was, I would, I put on the Beatles and I, I don't know if the weather, weather was actually accurate, but at the time I remember thinking I can imitate the four different Beatles. I know who they are. This is what George sounds like. This is what Paul sounds like. And I would, I would sing in those styles. And I remember thinking I could do, you know, I want to be, I want to be a singer. So seven years old, I guess would be the, that juncture when I, it went from being an, just an appreciator of music to having uh, the understanding that I could make music. How did you, how much singing had you done before that? Oh, I mean, uh, there was lots of singing in the family, kind of hippie singing, like the guitar would come out and someone would sing something from Crosby, Stills and Nash and everyone would sing along. Or we'd sing, my, my mom, we would go to political rallies you know, against the Vietnam War or what have you, and there would be lots of singing. But never, you know, I wasn't in a choir I, you know, until much later. Uh, you know, there wasn't any kind of institutionalized singing going on. And then there was singing at school, which was just ridiculous and stupid. 
the music curriculum. When I look back on it, it's just it was just awful. With, uh, <laughs> public school, it's ridiculous. So, when does one know that they have a good singing voice, or does it just come from the fact that you love to sing? I knew. And it wasn't hubris because I was too young to have hubris. I knew that I could sing and that that people were impressed, and that I could and I could tell when someone else was singing off key, and knowing that I could do it do better. And that was very young. That was like, again, in public school, we'd be singing with whatever some stupid song and uh, Christmas carols or whatever it was, and I understood that I had uh, more ability or more. Uh, accuracy or whatever it was really young like six wow and and then at what point so you, you see the Beatles and and you think <laughs> I can imitate them and mm -hmm. I'd like to do this but mm -hmm. what what does one do to pursue that I didn't pursue it um, I had the good luck when I was 13 years old of going to Spectrum, which was this alternative experimental junior high school in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And the music teacher, the entire school had 80 kids in it. Right. The music teacher was Ken Whiteley. Oh, really? Who's, who's you know, a Canadian music legend. Yes. And so, you know, if I'd stayed as I was at 12 years old, if I'd stayed at, Jean, at Jesse Ketchum, God forbid, I mean, I remember the music teacher there. I'm sure she was talented or whatever, but her idea, today we're going to learn about popular music. Here's something from Andrew Lloyd Webber's the uh, Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. That was her idea of popular music. Right. And I remember even at the time thinking, this is crap. <laughs> and then, uh, but then it goes, I, I went to Spectrum the next year and you have Ken Whiteley teaching us spirituals and, and you know, singing incredible songs. Uh, uh, what what we, we would say, on her Coney Island washboard, she would play... They play it on the boardwalk every day, like these old songs from the twenties. And we were we we had this eighty person jug band, and I was in the spoon section. <laughs> I'm not making it up. It was like yeah. a jug orchestra. Uh, and at that point, that's when I thought, "Wow, you know, I could really, I can really do this." Because I would sing and just hear that I was, you know, I just had more ability than most of the other kids. But right. even, then it, even then it wasn't, oh, I'm so great, I'm going to be a professional singer. It wasn't. It was, I think that I can get attention doing this. I think that I can get people to uh, give me praise. That's as far as it went. And then we went, I had a friend in high school named Ben Stein, who's now an academic and a really good um, kind of Renaissance-style guitar player. Mm-hmm. He, he and I would go down to St. Lawrence Market and do our Simon and Garfunkel routine <clears throat> on the weekends and make what felt like a huge amount of money. Uh, and we would find the, the space with the biggest echo and we would sing our Simon and Garfunkel and other songs. And um, it was, that was, I guess, the beginning. So I would have been 15 and then, and then we, uh, we had a band and we did R&B soul and R&B tunes. Um, and then by the by my late teens, I was writing songs and I was in a <laughs> I was in a Tower of Power tribute band. Really? <laughs> and uh, yeah. And, uh, and and then, yeah. And what was that experience like? Tell me about being in a Tower of Power tribute band. Well, I had this. You know how everything sort of comes around in your life? Everything's sort of weird and cyclical. Well, 
one of my kids' music teachers at Etobicoke School of the Arts is this guy, Brian Humphreys, who, when he was 15, was this unbelievable drummer and writing all the charts for these Tower of Power tunes, like writing all the horn charts at 15 years old. Wow. And all the ambush. You know what? We didn't have any rehearsals. That's it. People <laughs> just showed up to the gig. Larry's Hideaway on Gerard, I guess. And all the horn players came in and the bass player and the drummer. And they all just read charts the whole night that Brian had written at the age of 15. At the time, I didn't really appreciate it. Right. Uh, but it was some of the finest, as I came to realize, some of the finest musicians in the city. In fact, <laughs> I'm thinking about the horn section and it was like people from uh, the Shuffle Demons before the Shuffle Demons had started and, uh, you know, guys who now are teaching my oldest son in the U of T jazz department. They were in the horn section of that Tower of Power tribute band. Wow. Uh, and we were, yeah, so that was a long time ago. That was, so I was 17, so 1983. So we're talking, you know, you've mentioned Simon Garfunkel, you've mentioned yeah. Tower of Power. You, we're, we're talking basic popular music of that time is that what you're really into well no because it was no no think about it that was not the popular music of that time that was the popular music of 10 years before that oh yeah yeah, yeah. true true that was you know i was still st even back then i you know now i've always had what one would call catholic tastes i like i like everything right uh, although <laughs> as i get old and grumpy that's not actually true but uh what back then it was like so i was into prince and I was into punk music and, you know, in fact, I think this is funny, but the, but the night before I did the gig playing in the Tower of Power tribute band and I was singing and screaming at the top of my lungs and doing that music, the night before I went to the same club to see the Circle Jerks. I don't know. And I, okay, no, you don't. The Circle Jerks are classic American hardcore, like super fast. <laughs> and I remember being being in the mosh pit, and then the next night I was singing in a tower tower power tribute band. So, we, which is just showing either that I have incredibly diverse taste or that I have no taste, and I just like everything. <laughs> but that was my sort of teenage thing. I liked everything, and at the same time, because of my father's influence, I was really into opera. Wow. Uh, opera, I'm still into it. That was always kind of secretly my favorite music. You, you play the piano. I don't know if you play guitar as well, but where nah. did the musical instruments come in? Was that mainly to help you accompany your voice or was it? Yeah, I learned how to, I kind, I'm still, I would not hire myself to play piano, although I, I will, maybe I'll explain. I do make my living playing, kind of playing the piano, <laughs> but um, I learned to play the piano so I could write songs. Okay, so when like it the, wasn't about it wasn't about you know being playing. able to actually play. Yeah, but when did the appreciation for writing songs come about? In teenagers, um, it was like, well, I could do that. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't, but I, I thought maybe if I practiced, I could I could write songs too. Um, Any idea I, what kind of songs you were looking to write? Yeah, I, I wanted to write soul songs and R and B songs. I wanted to write like. You know, those guys in the 60s, like Isaac Hayes and David Porter and, and uh, the, the Motown writers. And, you know, I wanted to be able to write like that. That was my goal. Because uh, I, I kind of think of you, I mean, it's not hard for me to think of you as really R&B influenced. Oh, for sure. 
I mean, that music has basically disappeared from my life and I've been a completely different track for a number of years, but, but certainly teenage and, you know, my early, really my twenties was almost entirely trying to make that kind of music. I mean, I always used to joke that, uh, you know, I made a, I made my living in the nineties touring around doing ostensibly African-American influenced music and it wouldn't fly now in the same way, I don't think, because we were really, you know, there's, there's all sorts of consciousness now about appropriation. Right. Um, but we didn't care back then. Uh, I don't know if you had a voice, if I had a voice like yours, I, I just think that that opens up a lot of possibilities. Thanks for saying that. But, but okay, let me rephrase that. There would have been more thought put in. Let's put it that way. Right. It would have been a, a, a little bit, a little bit more self-conscious about it. Um, as I certainly am now, I, I don't just go willy nilly singing any music to express myself in any sort of cultural language. I think about what that means and, and, and the history of it and stuff much more than, than I, than I did then. Maybe that's just part of being young, but. Uh, right. At what point are you thinking that music is going to be the career that you pursue? Well, it's interesting. Um, I had, the two big influences in my life were my mom and my dad, and they had divorced in, when I was just a little baby. And my dad is was an academic, and his influence was very much go to university, get multiple degrees, and become a professional. And then my mom was much more follow your heart, be an artist. Um, ironically, at the age of 81, she's now getting her PhD, but that's another story. Wow. Um, yeah, she's an amazing woman. Anyway, so I kind of went the way of my mom and spent a year at university, hated it, and decided to pursue music, whatever that meant. Um, Did you so, know what that yeah, meant? I didn't know what that meant. I kind of lucked into a band that was very popular uh, at least on the local level. And I sort of, you know, I took it from there, but I knew that, I, you know, I, I had this perhaps naive sense that I was good enough to be able to make a living at it. And it's interesting. I, I had, a, I had this kind of romantic idea that just making a living at music was enough, even at, you know, the tender naive age of 20, whatever, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't even imagining stardom or something like that. I was imagining just the romantic notion of being able to, uh, you know, rent an apartment and, and buy food, just doing music. That was enough. Right. And so that was enough with playing with this local band. Yeah, we barely, you know, the problem with being in a band, I don't know what it's like now, but back then, you know, the idea is always that you that you make a minimal amount of money, but then most of the money gets put back into the band to pay for all the stuff. Right. You know, so we were, you know, we were barely, you know, in, in back in the '90s, uh, we were barely making a living, but we were. I mean, I had a nice place to live, and I I had groovy roommates, and and we, you know, we weren't starving, and I was just I was just singing all the time, which to me was heaven. Did you, um, did you ever dislike your voice? Yeah. How does, what happens then? Well, there's two different contexts in which I dislike my voice. One of them is when I would be on the road, like the band I was in in the 90s, we were so busy, it was insane. Can I, I ask what the band name was? The Bourbon Tabernacle Choir. Oh, okay. okay. We, we, were, we were, 
there was a couple years there. I'm not making this up. Where we were playing, I think it was 250 shows. Wow. Like an insane amount of performing. And so I would lose my voice or, or I would hurt it. Right. And I wouldn't have the notes and, and I would, you know, also I wasn't living well. I didn't get enough sleep and I was drinking too much and all that. Also, uh, and this is not insignificant. Like, I don't, I don't know if people appreciate when I was singing in bars, there was smoking. Like there was cigarette smoke everywhere. Right. And, you know, my clothes would stink of smoke. I wasn't a smoker. I didn't smoke a cigarette. But everything stank of cigarettes. And there was so, so much secondhand smoke. And I, I swear that was a big part of why my voice would get hurt. But anyway, that's another. So either my voice gets hurt so I don't have the notes. Right. Or the other other times I don't like my voice is when I realize that my favorite singers are people like Bob Dylan. And I go, my voice is too pure. My voice is too, it sounds like a voice in quotes that's been trained. Right. And that kind of voice can often drive me crazy. And I have that kind of voice. My voice is, uh, you know, clear and... And, you know, I can do licks and all that stuff. And so, you know, sometimes in my worst moments, to me, I sound like I should be singing jingles or like, a, you know, someone you'd hire and, and kind of nondescript. Uh, whereas the, all the singers that are the greatest are the ones you, you can recognize their voice right away. And they may not have a great voice in the, in the traditional sense, but they have so much personality those are my you know my favorite singers yeah. this is this is within a pop music frame because of i'll go back to the fact that my favorite music and my favorite singing is uh is operatic classical singing but that's a whole other whole other world I, and the reason why i ask is i, I can under, i can see how somebody might learn how to play the piano or guitar mm. and not be happy with their playing oh i see at certain points but i don't know if one can be not happy with their voice yeah, yeah. But for I mean, the reason that you you mentioned, I I, I can see that 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 well, happening. Yeah, I mean, I never had trouble. I never had a lot of trouble being able to hear something in a record and reproduce it lick wise and stuff. You know, obviously, I don't. I'm not as good as Marvin Gaye or something. Or right. you know, but but uh, uh, it was never about the kind of physical, technical ability stuff. It's more the sound of it. It's more the over singing like i'd listen back to a gig if we recorded it, and I, I know i just wince the whole time and say you know shut up just sing the melody don't be a doofus uh because you know it's like anything if you're a really great you know i'm not saying i'm a really great vocalist but if you're a vocal if you're a uh, say a guitar player who's practiced a lot and can play lots of scales and the tendency, the tendency especially if you're young is to just play all over the place and show off all the time right you know there's nothing worse i mean my god uh <laughs> Okay, tell me about Bourbon Tabernacle Choir. Mm. Tell me about how, because you weren't there at the very beginning, correct? No, I wasn't. Uh, but but before me, they were basically a high school band. Uh, oh, okay. They played very few gigs. Uh, we all met. We were. Uh, I was dishwashing and doing other things in the kitchen at the Bamboo Club on Queen Street, right? Which was kind of the most kind of the most popular restaurant in the city at that time. I remember just it was insane in there. It was just packed and just anyway. So and the, and the, the music, yeah. sorry, and the bands that play there were amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like, was that is it connected that why you why you worked there? Uh, no, I, I I needed to get a job and uh, I had moved out and just by luck, the my roommate at the time had was doing the was in the dish pit at the bamboo at night. Right. 
and I the day shift came up and I went and got the gig and then it just so happened that the Bourbon Tavern of the Choir made made up the rest made up basically the entire busboy uh, population. And we had I had played one I had this band way before that called Mama Wall that was just R and B covers and by pure chance I had gotten the gig opening for the Bourbon Tabernacle Choir at Lee's Palace. Right. And I think there was an audience of about twenty and the Bourbon Tabernacle Choir were these cute basically high school kids who, you know, the there wasn't much going on in terms of their playing ability and stuff, but there was something kind of exciting because there were so many of them on stage and there were two permanent members at that point who were just dancers in disco outfits. It was like insane. And no one else was doing what they were doing, which was what I love, original R&B. I mean, they were really interesting. Right. But anyway, so then later, just by chance, I meet, we meet at the, in the kitchen of the bamboo club and they're looking for a singer. And here, I, and suddenly I was in this, milieu where we all liked the same music and we all hated synthesizers and we were all like super opinionated about what's good and what's bad super snobs and uh you know i remember one time in one of our driveways i had this poly six like a crappy synth right and we we took a baseball bat to it (laughs) we were like we were crazy like we were just such snobs you know only only like organic rhythm and blues music. That's the only worth, thing worth listening to. I mean, we were we were really young, uh, and then we just we just started gigging, and and we were we felt a void because, you know, there was a lot. Most of the bands, it was still it was the it was the late '80s, and there was a kind of artifice like hair heavy metal bands with long you know crazy what yeah, you call yeah. hair, hair metal, and there was like synth stuff and like people taking themselves really seriously and we had a kind of party atmosphere and a real kind of sensibility of rhythm and blues. And, but also there was a, a left-wing political aspect to our band that was quite vocal. So a lot of things just kind of came together and on all the, the hippies loved us. And, and, and so at this point, cause the band did quite well. I, I, I don't know financially how well, but obviously if you're working 250 nights a, a year, then yeah. you're working. <laughs> So, oh, it was crazy. Yeah, and, we toured. We toured like maniacs back and forth across the country, um, and uh, yeah, at and that in, point in, into the states and stuff. Right. So, I mean, you guys even lived in the states for a while, right? Briefly, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, can I ask you what your your goals or objective would has it have, did it change at that point? Of just it was it more than just making a living in a band, or was it pretty well the same idea? Well, the thing is that. You want to keep growing, right? Mm-hmm. Because we were writing original songs, so you know, yeah, we could just keep playing clubs, but but you know, keep growing. You want to get more, a bigger audience, maybe sell records. We didn't didn't sell any records. We made, I think, we made a couple of good ones, but we didn't. They didn't sell. We didn't have the business thing together really. So the idea was let's keep, let's try to. I don't think it was ever let. We're going to play stadiums, but I right. think we were going to we create something that was sustainable, that and have a following all over the place where we could you know, tour and, and make good money. Right. Uh, uh, we never got there really, <laughs> but uh, um, that was the goal. I don't think it was ever, we're going to be the Rolling Stones or, or whatever. It was, we're going to create something that's sustainable. Right. Okay. So that, uh, even though you were busy, at one point or another, the band decides that they're going to break up. Mm-hmm. What happens then? At, well, what, what are you thinking at that point? Like just me personally, I I, uh, I had met 
Keo, who ended up, I've now been, we've been now married for 23 years, 20, 40. Um, and so I wanted, we were living in New York City, the band was, and I wanted to get back to Toronto and like this, it wasn't enjoyable. It's like we were starting again. We were living in this tiny place, all of us sleeping and sleeping back to us like this. No, I can't start again. And also I now miss Keo, who I've, I've met and want to spend my life with. And so it was like time to go home maybe reassess, uh, maybe the band can get back together, but I need, there needed to be a break. And then another thing that happened is I met uh, this guy named David Bookbinder who had a band, the Flying Vulgar Klezmer Band. Mm-hmm. And he coincidentally was really good friends with the keyboard player in the Bourbon Tabernacle Choir. And he had come down to live with us for a little while in New York when we were living there. And I was having conversations with him and it's like, he was like, why are you all living together in this tiny place? Why don't you just do like the way he, his band works is that, you know, people would do other stuff and then come together to do projects and little tours and not be, in, you know, living like the Partridge family. <laughs> right. Uh, and that appealed to me. And also there was something drawing me to him, the whole Jewish thing, because I'm Jewish. Right. And I had had the experience in the United States, and this is relating to before what I was talking about. And it, it is indulgent and it's a bit dumb, but we were playing in the United States now, and there were actually African-American people in the audience. And not that there weren't any in Canada, but certainly it was a different situation. Right. Because this was, we were playing music that was based on American music and based on African-American music. And I remember thinking, there's no African-Americans in our band. Uh, this is weird. And when David Bookbinder's there coincidentally, and he's, he performs and he writes music in traditions that uh, where that I share in terms of my background. It was really appealing to me. It was interesting. It's like, oh, that's the soul music of my ancestors, mm-hmm. klezmer, cantorial music, Jewish music. And so I was really attracted to that. And so when I came back to Toronto, I pretty wholeheartedly dedicated myself to learning about Jewish music. And that involved going back to university briefly to study Yiddish and Hebrew I took lessons uh, with a cantor in Toronto for a couple of years um, and did, and joined the Flying Blogger Klezmer Band and sang in Yiddish. And, uh, uh, and, you know, I study again Hebrew. How important was religion and the Jewish religion to you? Or does that even matter in terms of pursuing this music? Well, of course, Judaism is weird, right? Because... Uh, it's, I don't know whether you'd have this equivalent in other, like, I don't think the equivalent exists in say Christianity, right? You can be Jewish and completely not religious, but still feel very Jewish, right? Because Jewishness is also an ethnicity. It's that weird thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, my family, we are Jewish and we celebrate the Jewish holidays and everything, but we're completely secular and atheist. There's a tradition in Judaism kind of Yiddish-based tradition where it's kind of left-wing, even socialist or communist tradition married to Yiddish, which is Eastern European, uh, an Eastern European Jewish language. Uh, But again, uh, anti-theist. And so that's the kind of Jewishness and Judaism that I tap into. Um, So uh, was it difficult to like dive into it head first and and try to... To, to gain the history and all that goes with it? Yeah, because I hadn't had a Jewish upbringing. Yeah. 
uh, it was kind of like kind of like starting from scratch a little bit. I mean, not really, but but entirely. But but it did feel like I was ostensibly learning a language. And I mean, the really crazy thing was going was studying for, to to be a cantor. Um, I didn't for brief, I briefly thought I maybe I could be a cantor professionally, but uh, uh, that was a real eye opener. Not just because of the music's incredible, absolutely mind blowingly incredible, right. the traditional cantoral music, but also how intertwined it is with religion, uh, which does not interest me. Um, so, but but uh, uh, really, that was getting to a real source that just was. Uh, uh, this revelation for me, um, what, you know, the, the source of Jewish music and Jewish culture, whatever that is. Right. Um, but again, it was it was learning from ground zero, uh, and it was an amazing thing. A real, I'd say the the most the most rewarding and exciting part of, of be, being in my thirties. Um, how I mean, I would imagine those worlds so different from being in an R and B rock band to to pursuing klezmer music but is it is it just music and music is music and it's not that different or is it different well there's two answers one of them is yes it's completely different and what was i thinking i must be a maniac the other one the flip side the other side of the coin is there are similarities what were you why would you say what what the hell was i thinking well it wasn't what the hell was i thinking it was uh you know what a crazy thing to do I mean, I think it was—I think it was a good, crazy thing to do. Yeah, because it was what I needed at that point in my life, and I ended up, you know, really pursuing it and touring around and being in Jewish music ensembles. Um, but the other side, of, of course, is that there are similarities. It's—it's uh, it's it's the music and culture of, of an oppressed people. Right. Um, it's the—it's a—it's a music that is based on a kind of wailing. Like you know how in the blues you have blue notes and you have the notes in between the notes that express the the inarticulable like pain and 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 uh, those when when the great blues singers wail and they go in between the notes there's that emotionalism that can't be reproduced on the page right and the same thing exists in Jewish music if you listen to those cantorella recordings if you listen to uh, you know a traditionally singer singing folk songs in Yiddish there's this uh, there's a similar space that gets tapped into of uh uh you know whatever it is right. soul so you know the there's i have utilized my what i learned singing blues and r&b I've, I've i've tapped the same source i think what's what's the greatest thing you learned from your time with the bourbon tabernacle choir uh what's the greatest thing i learned uh, i learned well you have to remember i mean that was eight years in my twenties, yeah. so or six, whatever it was, so you know, it's in, it's a very significant time anyway. So in some ways, it's hard to separate just me growing up and becoming an adult uh, from, you know. So in other words, those years are seminal years for me, whether I'm in a band or not. Right. So, uh, but yeah, I learned how to sing. I learned how to be in front of large groups of people. Um, I learned how to navigate being on stage when you can't hear yourself and still be able to sing and not lose your voice. Those are very, you know, I learned, uh, I learned how to, uh, write songs. Yeah. I learned, I learned how to be in a van with a group of people for 
hours on end without killing them. <laughs> Good thing you learned that. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, being in a band really hips you to, uh, especially in tight quarters, it hips you to how to navigate relationships, interpersonal relationships. I mean, it's it's a, it's it's a it's a skill that has served me in all walks of life. And then, what would you have learned from pursuing cantorial music or the klezmer music? Um, all sorts of stuff. First of all, uh, it is that point that I really learned how to be a musician, I think. Can you elaborate uh, on that? Well, because the musicality, especially the cantorial music, the musicality is, is it, it's a, you know, it's very intense and technical. Right. Um, you know, and also the singing. I had to go to, back to the Royal Conservatory to, to learn, I guess, what you'd call operatic technique. Because the singing, especially in the cantorial context, is, is extremely demanding and technical. Had you had any training, like proper training no. before then? No. I had a couple music, a couple singing lessons, but not nothing really. Um, so I had to, I had to kind of go back and figure out what I was doing right and wrong, and and uh, you know just just a, a approach the voice, uh, not only as a, an expressive instrument, but as uh, something that needs to be preserved and something that needs to be cultivated and, and, and need, you know, one needs to practice it like any instrument. I didn't really have that together. Were you, were you um, surprised when, when you got that formal training to, to, to think about, you know, what you may have been doing right and what you may have not been doing right all this time? Um, well, that's a complicated question because, you know, I do wish I had had some of the technical knowledge that I learned later when I was in touring around in the Bourbons, but, but, you know, it's a cliche. If you, if you learn how to quote, sing, unquote, you're going to ruin some of the spontaneity and some of the risk taking and all, and the stuff that, that I used to do in the band, uh, which was, you know, th there's a kind of stiffness that, that, that can creep in. If you if you're too conscious, if you're worried about technique, then then you you start you can start to sound a little bit stiff, right? Which uh, which um, yeah. So I mean, it really is a different sensibility. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, 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 one thing that happened is I, I ended up with a much bigger range. Um, learning the classical voice stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and uh, and also stamina, um, but that's interesting. You know, uh, I don't know whether it would have been so great. <laughs> I mean, I, I, uh, whether it would have been so great to have the classical training when I was in the band in my twenties. I don't know whether whether that that would have been good. Which is, which is, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not able to answer this question very well. <laughs> that's, that's right. Um, <laughs> You also did two solo albums, one in two, sorry, 1993 and mm. the other one in 2006, I believe. Mm -hmm. So the one in 1993 was when I was in the Bourbons and I was just, I was hanging out with my roommate at the time was Gordy Johnson right, from Big Sugar. And he and I would go hang out at Ken Whiteley's house and Ken had a studio in his basement. We were just screwing around making tunes <laughs> and, uh, we just made this record and then Gordy was signed to uh, what record company? Uh, I can't yeah. remember anyway. So, and he got me a little record deal. Oh, okay. We put out the record and, um, but of course I was 
I had no time to promote it or tour it or anything because I was with the Bourbons and we were doing our 250 shows, whatever. Um, but that was just fun. And, and what, a, what a great time. I had a wonderful time making that record. I love it. And then the second one was after I was in the Bourbons and I, I, st I still had, I still wanted to make a kind of R&B record. And so that was later on, also with Ken Whiteley. So but it's very different. But it's crazy that you actually went to school and learned from Ken. And yeah. a few years later, you're still sometimes playing with Ken. Oh, it's great. Like it's, that's, I mean, it's, that's a it's long a relationship. Yeah, it's a wonderful feeling. And he and I still gig together. We, you know, ironically, after all this talk about being Jewish, blah, 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 <laughs> every year he and I sing at uh, a church on Christmas Eve on uh, Roncesvalles. We sing, obviously, Christmas music. Um, so I'm still, I'm, I'm still in touch with him. We still sing together. He's a, he's a magnificent musician on so many levels and a great singer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's a special feeling to look over and see your junior high school teacher in your band. <laughs> yeah, it's like talk about, yeah, I mean, that's a totally different relationship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great. And he also wrote like a, a, like a hit single with for Big Sugar. Yeah, we wrote a couple. Me, so my compatriot, when I was in the Bourbon Tabernacle Choir, my roommate and sort of best friend at the time was Andrew Whiteman. Andrew Whiteman was, uh, I guess, the rhythm guitarist or co-lead in the Bourbons. Right. And... Uh, he and I were super tight and we wrote songs together constantly. And just for fun, we would write songs and give them to Gordy Johnson. Sometimes he would record them. And he recorded a couple of our tunes that were, that ended up being big hits. <laughs> one of them was a number one Canadian rock song, I guess. Yeah. The scene. Um, yeah, that one. And then was another one that actually did better because it's all about the chart, right? So that one was number one on the rock charts. And then there was another one that was number five on the pop charts, which I guess was more called Better Get Used to It. And, and what does uh, that do to, to one's ego when you, when you produce hit songs? Uh, it does nothing. It's nice, to get, it's nice to make lots of money, which it felt like at the time, because actually Better, got, Better Get Used to It got turned into a beer commercial. Oh, which anyway, no, it does nothing to my ego because I'm the type of guy who's like, it's just pure luck. I happen to be in the room. I, uh, you know, we were just doing it for fun. It was pure luck. Uh, and the songs, you know, to be between you and me, they're not that great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, what does that uh, tell you though? Because I mean, you've written a lot of songs, mm. and then these these songs that you might not consider to be that great mm. have done very well. And I'm sure there are other songs that you think are brilliant that probably haven't been heard well yeah i mean that's isn't that always how culture works i mean uh you think some of the biggest hit songs in history and it's like what so what big deal like what what's the big deal about that song it's there's so much luck involved and and uh you know gordy at that time when he recorded those songs was really hot he'd already had huge hits right and uh you know and he produced them like he changed the songs to the point where he made them into hits uh, you know, if it would have been the, the original demos, like they sounded ridiculous. Uh, you know, he turned them into these, he, you know, he was a real hit maker. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's another indication that I've been really lucky in my life that I've been able to make a living for music. I mean, but of course, that's not where I've made the most money for music. Is it the uh, scores? Are we talking about the film? It's and... the scores, yeah. So how did I'm, you get into that? Well, also luck. My, I married Keo McClear, the great writer Keo McClear whose father passed away a couple years ago, um, was Michael McClear, one of the most celebrated 
documentary filmmakers in Canada and a broadcaster, super famous guy. Like he was the first Western journalist to go to Vietnam during the war. Right. Um, this, this monster of, of uh, international journalism. And he had, he was making documentaries and he said, would you know, he, he recommended me uh, as a, to score a doc by one of his friends and, and uh, uh, it worked. Okay, so tell yeah. me about how how you kind of dove into that. Like, obviously, it's a different kind of writing style than mm-hmm. putting something to Gordy Johnson. And so, how did how do you change from being a pop rock R and B writer to being a film score? Well, um, there's a, there's a few answers. One of them is that I'm not really a film. I I think that's a glorified. Uh, characterization of what I do. I, most of what I've done, the vast majority has been for television. Okay. And the vast majority has been for television documentaries. So a lot of it's in the background and you can hardly hear it. Right. <laughs> but, but no, it's true. Uh, but, but I think one thing that I've always been good at is coming up with catchy melodies. Right. Like I just have it. I really am pretty good at that. So, and there's lots of melodic necessities in that music, in, in, in scoring for picture coming up with the melodies that people will recognize. You know, the best scores are ones where you, oh, that's the theme from blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. So I think I'm good at that kind of thing. Um, also, I had that upbringing that we really didn't, didn't touch on. I kept sort of hinting at it. Uh, my Both my father and mother were really into classical music. Right. And so I have tons of just by osmosis knowledge about classical music. Um so, you know, and that comes into play, the, the, how you take motifs and you develop them, how you have textures, uh, how to, you know, you, you, a sense of arrangement, you know, combinations of instruments, uh, a history of, of, uh, of music that works as a score because it's instrumental and atmospheric. Um, so that, you know, I think that my knowledge base instinctively touches on those places because of my upbringing um and it's you know there's so many there's a lot of it's computer skills a lot of it's being able to think in terms of not getting in the way of the dialogue like weird skills you wouldn't think but uh, (laughs) But did that come to you easily to 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 get the sense of what works and what doesn't in in this film and television world that i don't know I don't know if it came easily. It came, but yeah, you have to realize that I, I think I've probably scored about 200 things at least. So just over time, I just got, I think pretty good at it. There's people who are way better than I am, but you know, I'm good enough to get hired over and over again. So, uh, I have a certain knack for sure. And this is, this is with your limited keyboard skills. Yeah. Because, you know, like, you don't need to be a virtuoso. Like I, I, you can touch on Hector Berlioz, one of the most famous composers in history, couldn't play any instrument. I play better piano than he did. Now that it's about being having using the instruments as your as your instrument. You know what I mean? Using yeah, yeah. the instruments of the orchestra. And, and let's face it. I mean, a lot of the stuff you hear in the in the work that I do, I call them one finger cues. Where it's like, you know, they need they need tension that you can hardly hear, but it's creating tension underneath the dialogue. The one thing I'll say about scoring to picture that's really interesting is that you get you get uh, rewarded for not being noticed. Right. 
When I was in bands, I got rewarded for being noticed, for being the center of attention. But in this work, I'm, it's like, if you don't notice the music, then it's working. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, it's, you know, I mean, we often use music for our videos and stuff. And it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to combine the two. And when it's used right, it might not be noticed, but if it's done right, it's amazing. And it adds so much to the, to the film. But, well, of course. Yeah. Of course. But you don't want to have a score that calls attention to itself because then you're wrecking the, the piece. Right. But there's a fine line between. Exactly. Yeah. So. Exactly. But also you've done other things like experimental um, video walls or whatever. Like you've, you've, yeah. you've done multimedia projects, experimental projects, video yeah. installations. Mm-hmm. So is it just, is it, is it the same way that because you love so so many different kinds of music and open to so many different things is do you approach all projects the same way um like you seem to be open to doing a lot of different things yeah and that's related to the fact that i that i have i you know like a very eclectic artistic sensibility which again you can look at as something great or you can look at as something lazy because I also appreciate it when people are focused. I think it's great when people are really great at one thing. I mean, in my worst moments, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. Seriously. In my best moments, I, I really hit on something and it's great no matter what the genre is. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I have, I have, again, very Catholic tastes. So uh, one of the things I'm really proud of is I did this video installation that turned into a film later with the filmmaker John Grayson, which was an opera with real operatic singers and orchestration and all that. Um, and I think that, that it worked. It was really good. And it's interesting, one of the things is that it was pleasurable to listen to. I find a lot of art installation and a lot of experimental stuff can be abrasive and obnoxious. Yeah. Um, and I never want to do that. Uh, so that's, I think maybe if there's, if there's an underlying theme to my work, it's that I want it to be pleasurable. (laughs) Do you have a preference on, I mean, Jack of all trades, obviously you've proven that you can do very many different things. Mm. Um, but you know, a lot of people know you for your singing and and your voice. Yeah. Like is, is singing more pleasurable than sitting and writing television soundtracks or like or does it matter like is everything a challenge and that's interesting um i don't do as much singing anymore it's always like there's a there's a pleasure and a pain the pain is being is not having enough rehearsal time being worried that i'm going to screw up the sort of emotional nudity of getting on stage in front of people and singing there's nothing in the way it's very naked uh, and so there's a kind of emotional highs and lows that exist yeah. um, that I certainly don't have to reckon with when I'm sitting at home writing music for whatever it is. Um, but you don't get don't the know, feedback. Yeah, but there's highs in both situations. I like being part of a team. What's great about scoring to pictures, you're really part of a team. Maybe that's what I meant before when I said you get rewarded for not being noticed it's not that you get rewarded for doing the gig whatever was required and doing a good job at it and not necessarily shining as some star 
uh, whereas singing in front of people is a very different, there's a very different criteria for what a successful gig is. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess there's elements that I like of both, but as I get older, I mean, uh, I love being at home and, and, you know, coming, just looking at a, a scene that I've just scored and thinking, wow, that really, that really worked. Uh, that's a beautiful thing. Like to feel, to feel that, that, that I've served the, 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 the art, whatever it is to the best of my ability. And that, and that has worked. It's a wonderful feeling. I can imagine. Um, do you miss the amount of singing? Well, obviously not the amount of singing you used to do, mm. but do you miss, mm. cause I know you still go out there and do a few things, mm-hmm. but it's more a few things as opposed to many things. Like I, I don't think you're gigging that much. No, I, I miss, I miss the feeling of being of having a band, of being and having this kind of unbelievable, uh, to, to to the point of a kind of psychic connection with the rest of the other band members. If you tour that much, I didn't appreciate it at the time. If you tour that much, you are so in tune where you don't even you, you don't have to rehearse. You you just get up and everyone knows what's going to happen next. So there's this kind of instinctive thing that happens. And I have not had that since, since the nineties. Right. What was it's, it like uh, getting back together? Didn't you do a reunion gig? It, it was fun. It was fun. I mean, all of the, you know, at first it was like, Oh, everyone's so different. And wow, this is just so easy now. And then all the old stuff started coming back. <laughs> <laughs> but I love those people. I love those people. But you know, it was, it was uh, from a time when I, when everyone was really young and weird. Right. and and uh immature and and so you regret i don't know about you but if i'm around certain people it's like i went to my high school reunion and i lasted five minutes because <laughs> i because i regressed right i became that person again insecure worried uh i'm not saying that i'm not insecure and worried now but i'm, I'm much more in command of myself and i know what i what situation to avoid um, and I don't need to impress as much as I used to, but so all that started to come back at my high school re- reunion. And in some ways doing that gig with the Bourbons was at Hillside was a high school reunion. Wow. Um, I mean, it's, it's funny that, you know, you talk so positively about that group thing because mm. I rarely, I mean, I hear so many people talk about how difficult it is to be in a band in a group and, and just, but, but I can see the positives of it. That's why people do it. But I can also totally understand the negatives and how difficult it is to put a bunch of people together and have them live with one another. Well, and you, you have to understand that that band was a love affair. For the first at least three years, we were all in love, and it was like really was a hippie commune, hmm. and we were just loving it. I mean, there were some who were less excited, I guess, and there were ups and downs. But in general, it was this commune. It was this feeling we were on a mission. And we were playing so many gigs that the band sounded great. And we didn't, you know, we were just really in touch with each other. And it, it went toxic like most things do. But um, so that was my experience. And I know that I was very lucky to have that. Right. Um, I think that Andrew went on, like the, the guy who was my roommate and my best friend and was also in the band, he ended up in broken social scene, which I, th- I think had some of that sensibility as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never had that again. Uh, that that utter, you know, intertwined love affair kind of situation. That was like it was like the you know we traveled around. It was like the Partridge Family, as I or, you know, it really was. <laughs> and obviously, I was David Cassidy. Of course. <laughs> yeah. What a what a <laughs> fascinating journey you've taken. You know, from 
from that R&B band to to pursuing your heritage, I guess, and and singing klezmer music mm. to the soundtracks and film scores. Um, what are you working on these days? Uh, well, I've got a couple things. I've got uh, I'm right now scoring a film. I think it's because it's the anniversary of the end of World War II. Right. So it's interviews with Canadian vets talking about the, the last days of World War II and the kind of horrors of it. Yeah. So that's a feature for, I think, history television. Wow. And then I'm working on a, a installation at the AGO um, called Panorama, which is this really interesting, it's going to be in multiple galleries, and it's the idea of people, amateurs, uh, documenting themselves with with home you know from like cave painting as far as i understand i'm not totally sure from like all the way from cave paintings to tiktok basically huh. and so they want to have there's a kind of musical component to this filmic installation uh, so i'm working on that um i'm doing little singing gigs here and there I, i've been recording with uh um one band uh it's funny i'm forgetting what they're called, <laughs> forgetting what they're called. <laughs> It's like a Hebrew. Anyway, uh, and also I have, you know, I've been doing little gigs with the Ashkenaz Festival. I've got, um, which is still going, even though the, no one can go to live gigs. And performing with Marilyn Lerner on the weekend, a live gig oh. um, that will be broadcast on, I don't know, Zoom or however it works. Uh, so, yeah, I'm busy. And, and musically, um are you still composing music for yourself at all, or is it? Just... I do. I I'm constant. I always like write little songs, but as kind of just a, a lark. Um, I can't imagine at this point recording a record. To me, that just seems so weird. I don't know what it means anymore. I don't know who listens to it, what you do with it. Like, you know, it goes out on into the ether, into yeah. the, the the ether of the internet, and you and you have this kind of presence. Or maybe you know, people just record a single song and put it out, or they make a YouTube video or it doesn't interest me really at this point, maybe it might change. But if you wrote, what would the music be? Like if I, if all of a sudden you said, you know what, I think I want to do one more solo album. Mm. And I know that it could range from, from everything, basically opera to pop to rock to whatever. What do you think you musically where you're at right now? I've been writing kind of songs that sound like old jazz standards. Oh, like with slightly more intricate, you know, harmonies and trying to, I'm sure I'm not succeeding, but trying to write sort of clever lyrics. That's what I've been doing. Uh, it's just sort of been coming out of me. I've written a lot of stuff like that. I don't know if it makes sense to record it. Who would want to listen to it besides <laughs> me? Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm always, I'm a, I'm a creative guy. I'm always creating stuff. Did you, did that... Did you ever doubt what you, what you, the path you chose? Did I ever what? Doubt? Yeah. Oh, of course. I mean, have you ever talked to someone who would say no? I mean, I, I think if, if they said no, that they're either lying or they're, they're living, a, a, you know, <laughs> well, delusionary. Of, of course, we all doubt, don't we? I mean, I mean, I, maybe doubt's not the right word, but I, I, I know people who maybe had no other choice. Mm, and, yes. and and maybe gave themselves no opportunity for other options because they were so committed early on to doing music that, you know, at the age of 50, they're not going to start a new job. Yeah. I mean, I, I 
it needs to be said that I, I did, I had a whole other career we haven't mentioned, which was I worked for three years in, in a corporate job at Jazz FM 91. Right. Uh, and then that ended. And then I was like, I kind of like doing community work in at Jane and Finch, which was part of what I was doing. Right. So I went, I just got a, I got a, a diploma from George Brown College in social work. Um, and I've been, you know, so part of me wants to, and then of course COVID-19 hit and there, I can't possibly be doing frontline work right. in this context. So part of me wants to, I, I was doing this, perhaps the most rewarding thing of my life has been um, for a couple of years there, I was uh, leading a singing group at uh, a men's shelter for addicted men. I was going in every week with a couple of guitar players and we were getting requests and they, they were all singing and we were, we created this choir basically. Uh, and it was incredibly rewarding. You have no idea. Like it was just, you know, cause these guys were hardcore with tattoos on their faces, some of them. And, and yet they wanted to sing. We had them singing songs by Bob Marley and, you know, and then some of them would request weird, you know, like uh, a ballad by Black Sabbath. <laughs> But we were all singing together and, and telling jokes and laughing, and um, so I'd love to. I'd love to have that kind of thing be a component in my life, uh, and that was something that that I used to bemoan. I used to. I remember being on the road and thinking, you know, having these moments where, like, wait a minute, I'm a glorified beer salesman. Hmm. Uh, and there's something inconsequential about singing in a band in a bar so, to me. That I would feel that way, and then I'd have a good night and be like, oh, this is so great, but. But uh, I would like to, uh, part of me wishes that I had, you know, gone on a, tra a trajectory that had more, had much more of a direct social component in terms of being socially reparative, trying to make the world a better place to, to be trite. Um, so, you know, I think that's in my future. Here I am in my 50s saying that, my future, but I do think it is. Um, I'm going to ask one more question to end mm -hmm. close it off, but what, mm -hmm. what's the greatest thing you've learned from your life in music. Um, like the greatest thing I learned from my life in music. Uh, that art is necessary to people. That, you know, those moments of doubt, the one I just mentioned, how I'm just a glorified beer salesman is actually BS. I think that the world would be a really crappy place if there wasn't art in music mm -hmm. and that it's necessary and that it has this incredible power. I don't think music or art on its own changes the world or does actual political change, but it can certainly be a component of that. And it makes life bearable right. for people, not just me, but for other people. Uh, what was, I think there's a Frank Zappa quote. I'm not going to get it right. He said, without music, life is just, uh, you know, worrying about taxes and, and going to the bathroom. I can't remember exactly what he said. Uh, but yeah, art and music are necessary because they make life bearable. They make life enjoyable. And, uh, and, and so I'm glad to be, I'm, I feel really lucky to have been gifted enough to uh, add to the music of the world. Because sometimes it can feel like, I call it uh, landfill syndrome. I think I'll make a CD, you know, like, why? There's already 10 zillion CDs, or there's already 10 zillion songs coming out today. Why make more? But you know what? That's stupid. Like, the, the world is always better when there's more art in it. Yeah, and when you talk to musicians and somebody comes up to them and says, that song means the world to me or changed my life. I mean, that's a very powerful thing. Mm. 
I don't think anyone's ever said that to me, but yes. <laughs> people have said, wow, that was really great, you know, but not that I have to think anyone's changing anything. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's, um, I know it's been a while, but I yeah. really appreciate you doing this after. And, and I'm sorry it took, it took so long to get this together because we have had opportunities to have this discussion in the past and it hasn't happened. Well, it was well worth the wait. Oh, good. Thanks. Thank Thanks you for... so much for doing it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, great. Great. Thanks. Thanks.